This program is brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. If you like what you hear and want to support our work, please make a donation at fundraiser.resonance.fm. You're listening to Panel Borders on Resonance 104.4 FM and DAB in London. I'm Alex Fitch, and this is Resonance's monthly show about comics, graphic novels, and sequential art. In today's program, we have a couple of talks which give an account of the history of comics. In the first half of today's programme, historian Alice Loxton is looking at the life and works of Georgian satirists Thomas Rowlandson, Isaac Cruikshank and James Gilray, which can be seen as the origins of comics as we know it today, with these three artists producing satirical prints of public figures of the time, which were displayed alongside each other in print shop windows, perhaps anticipating the layout of modern comics, and certainly can be seen as forebears of modern political satirists and cartoonists that you find today in newspapers and such publications as Private Eye. Rowlandson died in 1827, and that's where the second half of today's programme picks up, with academic Benoit Peters, looking at the origins of comics in the 19th century and throughout the 20th, with the very first sequential graphic novel being produced by Swiss artist Rudolf Toffler in 1827, leading to numerous other works across Europe as various other characters continue to develop the form. So to start off with, here's Alice Loxton talking about a trio of Georgian satirists in a talk that was recorded at the Cartoon Museum in London as part of a launch for her book, Uproar, Satire, Scandal and Printmakers in Georgian London. Well, thank you so much everyone for joining tonight. It's wonderful to have you here. And I am a little, I'm very aware of where we are, the Cartoon Museum. So I'm sure that many of you are very keen, you know, you're, you're probably used to, to, to knowing that, you know, lots of people don't really know who Gilray is or don't know that much about Gilray. And so that's really how I've, um, how I've approached this book. That's why I've written this book, you know, and, and we can share the, our enthusiasm for Gilray and that wonderful world of satire. So I really want to transport you back to London at the end of the, at the, the close of the 18th century because it was a circus, it was a pantomime, that's how people described it. We had port-pickled politicians weeping over their own brilliant classical oratory. We had duchesses prancing through butcher shops in a flutter of lace and ribbons and every vagabond and countess, scoundrel and bishop would gossip with glee over the Royal Academy's placement of a fig leaf. So it was an exciting time, but there was only one thing in this circus that really electrified the city. It attracted vast crowds of people pushing and screaming. Their enthusiasm, it was said, was indescribable. Toes were trodden on, bonnets went awry and buckles snapped. It was described as veritable madness. Madness! Visitors reported you have to make your way through the crowd with your fists. And so this really was the Beatlemania of the day. So what was it that these crowds were so keen to get a glimpse of? They were looking at the latest satire hanging in the print shop window by caricaturists such as James Gilray, Thomas Rowlandson 
and Isaac Cruikshank and many more. But in this book, that's really what I focused on. And there are some brilliant examples of these, incredibly, in the room behind me. Now, their images were political and social critiques of all levels of society, from king to pauper, nobody was safe. Nobody in this room would have been safe. They had razor-sharp wit, bold creative vision, and superb artistic skill. And with this incredible tool set, prime ministers were reduced to toadstools. Great emperors were reduced to tantrum-ridden toddlers. And high society pretension, fashion, and paintings were reduced to rather unattractive image, shall we say. Now, in my opinion, and hopefully you will share this opinion, that these artists, especially Gilray, are some of the greatest figures in British history, if not greatest artists. And yet, they are almost unknown to the British public in the, in the way that we know Reynolds, in the way that we know Turner, on that level. And that is why I've written this book, to really kind of kickstart a Gilray renaissance, a Gilray comeback, if you like, uh, to shine a light on these brilliant creatives. So thank you for joining me tonight. I mean, there is so much one could cover on Gilray. There are thousands of these prints um, and all these artists. And tonight, I will really only be looking at the tip of the iceberg. So I'm just going to cover a few key things, how these artists ended up making the satires, how the prints were made and sold, why they disappeared from history. So let's get into it. Who were these artists? Who were these guys? And how on earth did they end up making such weird images as this? Well, in the book, I focused on three main artists, for simplicity's brevity's sake. And the first one is Thomas Rowlandson. Now, he was born in 1757, and he was born in the city of London to William and Mary Rowlandson. Now, his parents, they faced bankruptcy, they moved out of London. So he grew up, actually, with his Aunt Jane, who was a kind of mother figure. The brilliant thing about these artists is they always draw their own lives so that you have a lot of sources to see what's going on. But at various times, actually, very close to where we are now. He was living in Soho, just north of Oxford Street at various points. And he really spent most of his life in the centre of London. Now, Rowlandson had this brilliant artistic skill and he was sent to this brand new artistic institution called the Royal Academy Schools. So this is the kind of, you know, the schools of the Royal Academy of Arts as we know it today. It was set up by Reynolds and it was really set up to teach people to be, you know, Reynolds, you know, following Reynolds' footsteps, making great artistic, uh, great grand paintings to put in your big country house kind of vibe. So if you've ever been to a National Trust house, that's the kind of, you know, image that we're looking at. Now, as you might have suspected, these artists did not quite follow that track. Um, you know, they were, they were there at the Royal Academy trying to make sketches, and the intention was, you know, you'd sit in this, this, round, this round bench and all the students would be around, um, and in the middle would be the thing that you needed to draw to study classical, you know, classical poses or, or whatever it was. But of course, Rowlandson, who was so delighting in, uh, you know, the ordinary follies and foibles of everyday life, he actually took to sketching his fellow students and what they were up to. So I think you can see a little insight into it, kind of Rowlandson's interests at that point, which will really, you know, flower in his later life. They have this kind of nude uh, life model in the centre, and then they also would go to the Plaster Academy where they would draw classical casts. So it's a very traditional kind of way of, 
of learning. But you know, this was really important because these artists were really trained to be top-notch artists, and they really could understand how to depict. Uh, they understood, you know, classical poses, and they could understand how to capture, like, you know, by life. So if Gilray was standing here, or Rollinson was in this room right now, he'd be able to capture all of you, you know, in an instant, which is quite a terrifying thought, I think. Now, my second, the second artist is Gilray, and and he was born in August in 1756. He lived in Chelsea. It, which at this point in time was a kind of village on the north, on the bank of the Thames, you know, a couple of miles in the centre of London. So it's much more rural than we know it today. And Gilray's father um, had fought at the Battle of Fontenoy. So he was this kind of, um, yes, yeah, so he was a soldier, but he, he was terribly injured. He lost an arm. And of course, as a soldier, that's not, you know, you become quite not very useful quite quickly. Um, so anyway, he ended up at, Ch at Chelsea, which had been this place which, you know, the Chelsea Hospital that we know today, where uh, veterans or injured soldiers might go. Um, so anyway, he ended up in Chelsea, origin having originated uh, from Scotland. So they ended up in Chelsea. Gilray grew up in Chelsea. His parents were Mor Moravians. They're a type of Christian who had this very kind of negative or pessimistic view view of the world. They, they basically viewed life on earth as a kind of waiting, you know, they're waiting to, to go through this place of great sin and waiting to get out. And in fact, Gilray's younger brother at one point is really ill and he's actually begging at this point on his deathbed, please release me from this, you know, place of earthly sin. Please allow me, take me away from this, this earth. Um, so they have this quite strange view of the world, I suppose, and I think it's quite a pessimistic view that perhaps would, perhaps you could read into that um, in, in his later work, the way that he kind of criticises people later on. Anyway, that is Gilray, and he too ends up at the Royal Academy Schools, and he's offered, he's this incredible um, artist, and, and Gilray, he started off, you know, he, he was obviously really good at painting, and he, they sent him to a uh, they originally sent him to a letter engraving, you know, making business cards, basically, doing the swirls on business cards. You know, zero creativity. If you imagine, like, a kind of teenage boy who's really creative, I, I feel like, you know, it's no surprise that he was quite frustrated. So he did, did run away. They think, you know, there's perhaps a suggestion that he went away and jo joined a troupe of strolling players, a.k.a. a group of actors. Um, we don't really know. But anyway, he does end up at the Royal Academy Schools. Um, and then the third artist that I look at is Isaac Crook. Shank, who, um, who comes down from Edinburgh, he's based in Edinburgh, and then he joins the other artists in, in London. But all of these artists, or we know at least, you know, probably Rowlandson and Gilray, certainly Gilray, his trade card, it reads Gilray Portrait Painter. So from the outset, they were keen to be these grand painters. They were keen to be a kind of Reynolds of the day. This is a kind of an attempt for Gilray to be a serious artist, but it doesn't work out. And for whatever reason, we're not really sure, perhaps it's people try and get into the music industry today, people might try and get into certain industries and they just can't get in and they never get their break or it's very competitive. And so instead of doing the kind of big shot things that they really want to do, they have to make another move. And, and they were doing these kind of satirical prints at the time and perhaps they were just more lucrative and that's how they ended up in it. But anyway, we do know that they, from the kind of 1780s, they really focused on these satirical prints and they were really making a big impact. So how on earth does one make a satirical print? Well, it's a, a complex process that can be done very quickly if you're good at it. And I think these satirists, so they would have all been based in central London, living very close to each other. All the print shops were very close to each other, five, ten minute walk from sort of Covent Garden area. Um, of course, near Westminster. So say, you know, 
William Pitt, the Prime Minister of the time, is making a speech in the House of Commons. Well, Gilray might have gone to the House of Commons gallery, or he might have seen these people walking around, because it's such a small area that they would have seen everybody walking around all the time. And he would have you know, used his brilliant skills of being able to capture a likeness, and he would have sketched people. As you are sitting here now, he would have looked at you and he would have been sketching you. And then he would go back and go to the print shop, perhaps, and, and you know, draw up a design, maybe they might discuss it with the print owner, the print shop owner. Um, there's a wonderful lady called Hannah Humphrey, who's this really important print, shop, print seller at the time. And it's a bit like how journalists think about a commissioner, say, at the uh, the Times. You know, they would they would have people that they've worked with for years. They're great columnists, and they're discussing ideas. And you know, the columnist might discuss the might suggest the idea, and the commissioner might you know go they might go back and forth on it. They might have been very familiar with each other's work for many years. So I think it would have been it's very hard to work out quite who comes up with the ideas. But I think they would have discussed all the ideas. You know, looked at it together. You know, perhaps the print sellers might have got other commissions at the time, so they don't want to overlap, or they're conscious about you know like not annoying certain important people or you know whatever whatever there's all these different reasons right but anyway they decide on a print and then they need to transfer this image or put this design onto a metal plate and next door is a wonderful metal plate which are really really rare because lots of them are lost um, so definitely have a look a close look at that afterwards so they would always work with a metal plate about quarter a four size and uh, the way you know we've got all these different tools so you can make all sorts of different textures and patterns and things. There are basically two ways of using these metal plates. Either you scratch out the, the image and then you ink it up and then you put a bit of damp paper down and you peel it off and then you've got the black and white print. So that's one, one option. Or you cover the metal plate with what's called a wax ground and then you scratch away the bits of the wax, which is the kind of design that you want. And then you put this, this plate into an acid bath. And then, you know, when you're at the, on the course, you've got to wear like a lot of, you know, protective equipment and goggles and all this kind of thing. And then you leave it in there for about five minutes, take the plate out, and then the bits that have been exposed have been bitten into. So that's another way of making the image. And then you kind of take the wax ground off. And then, but afterwards, you know, you can, you can scratch into it a bit more. So it's a one-way process. And you, as soon as you put a line in, you can't erase it. And that, that, I'm sure they face those sort of problems. And then after that, they'd be colored. And then they would be displayed in the print shops. In, in different, you know, each pane would have a different print in it and people could go into the print shops, they could buy them and they would have been quite expensive products, so they're quite a luxury product really, um, but uh, so only kind of for the wealthy to buy. But of course the brilliance of it is that everybody in the street, rich or poor, can go and have a look at these prints. So when you're looking at these prints and you're thinking about how they design them, you've got to think, well, you know, they obviously were aware that all these different levels of society would have seen them and whether some of them were designed for certain, certain different groups. Um, but the people who could afford them might buy them. So sometimes they'd been put up in these in these kind of grand houses in that way, um, or sometimes you know you could rent them out for a ball. Um, so in between dances, you know, for a night, you might you might have a, a flick through some prints and have a, a nice little laugh. So lots of different ways that people could enjoy the prints. And there's one really you know what's so brilliant about these prints is that in every the bottom corner or all of them they have this amazing code that you can go and you can look in that room next door and you can go and work out all of this information 
about the print, just from this little bit of writing. So every single print has who made it, where it was sold, the date it's sold. So you know, when you're writing about this, it's really, it's really handy because you can say like, oh, on this date, William Pitt made this speech. And then the day after, like Gilray made this image. And obviously, that's a result of those two things. So it's really, really, you know, it's, it's quite fun to know the code because you can suddenly work everything out. Um, one of the big questions that people always ask me is, how much did these artists know each other? Were they competitive? Were they friends? Were they, you know, what was the relationship between all of these artists? And I think um, basically, you know, they lived and they worked in all these very these places which were very very close together. And there are some episodes where they obviously copy each other. And I think you can you can tell that they would have then gone into the different print shops. They'd be discussing it. Uh, they would be, you know, they would totally have overlapped all the time. And I think that's something weird that we haven't really just, you know, no one's really thought of them as a set of artists, like the pre-Raphaelites, like um, maybe the YBAs or something like that. But, you know, they were, they were influenced by each other all the time. One by a guy called William Dent um, in 1788 depicts one of the politicians of the time, a man called Charles James Fox. And it's named The Wonderful Word Eater Lately Arrived From Abroad. And basically, the idea of this image is that Fox, in the current political situation, is he is completely backtracking for his own agenda on, on, his, on his principles. So he's eating his own words, a word eater. Okay, that's, that's the concept. And all of his kind of principles are on this long piece of paper, and, and he's just eating them all up, you know. And that, that's quite a good visualisation, quite a distinctive visualisation, I think. And they always have these wonderful descriptions below. And this one, this one reads, you know, it's got this description, Fox, who wonderfully outdoes all of the wondrous fire eaters, stone eaters, toad eaters, etc., that ever exhibited, engaging to crack, scrunch, swallow, and digest as many of the largest and hardest words in the English language as will reach round Westminster. So I think, you know, a good image there, quite a distinctive one. But the next day is another image, which makes you think that the person who made this image might have seen the one from the day before. And this is one by Thomas Rowlandson. And again, it shows Fox making his case to the Commons. And, you know, these are all his principles here. And he's kind of, you know, presenting them all. But it's again, it's called The Word Eater. And it's got this advertisement extraordinary. That's what it's titled below. And it says, this is to inform the public that this extraordinary phenomenon has just arrived from the continent and exhibits every day during the sittings of the House of Commons before a select company. He eats single words and evacuates them so as to have a contrary meaning. For example, of the word treason, he can make reason. And of reason, he can make treason. He can also eat whole sentences and will again produce them either with a double different or a contradictory meaning. So I think that's a, a good, um, you know, they're wonderful. One, you know, reading the text is just so wonderful to hear this such lively language. But I do think, you know, it's, it's interesting to see that they are obviously kind of working, you know, working off each other's work all the time. 
um, what's so wonderful about these prints is it can really take you through all the big events of the time. So obviously a big moment was the French Revolution, um, and this was something that was massively reported in London. This one is called The Martyrdom of Louis XVI, the King of France, and this was made a few days after Louis' execution. It's kind of, uh, it's quite a serene moment, it's quite a peaceful moment, you know, it's not, it's not really aggressive, it's, it's kind of, you know, we've got this kind of divine sunlight coming down onto Louis' face, and he's called a martyr, and that perhaps re re reflects the mood of the country at the time, but then, Give it a few days and everything's changed. Gilray gave the people of London. It's not shying away, it's not a martyrdom, it's not a peaceful image. This is a horrific, nightmarish Pandora's box image. This enormous swirl of red smoke, you know, all of that blood. Um, and it's titled The Blood of the Murdered Crying for Vengeance. And this, all of these words basically are just saying, you know, look at me, look at my family, look at my country, look what happened, it's, it's, it's terrible, don't let it happen to you. It's a big, it's like a terrifying warning um, in, in a pretty dramatic way. And I think you have to realise that this would have been seen by people in London where, you know, not long after this event had actually happened. And there was every reason that they could think that the revolution could happen in London in the same way. So that's a pretty terrifying thing for people to be looking at. But of course, in the 1790s, after the French Revolution, this was a very difficult time to be in power, to be Prime Minister. And the print that really encapsulates what was going on. So here we have William Pitt, who's the Prime Minister. He's at the helm of this boat, the Constitution, and he's got a passenger, and this is Britannia. And this boat is pretty low in the water, it's pretty choppy waters, and, um, you know, a bit of a wave and this boat might sink completely on either side and the boat is going to this pretty miserable island in the distance that's where it's heading for but it's actually titled the haven of public happiness which is not a very uh it's not a very hopeful thought to think about but what are we what we're looking at here is as it's titled britannia between scylla and charybdis and this is like a, a classical um, metaphor that's been used. You know, Scylla and Charybdis are these, these ancient, um, the, the rock of Scylla, which is this like ancient terrifying monster who would be by this great rock. And then on the other side, Charybdis was this terrible whirlpool. And it was this kind of famous thing that sailors in the classical mythology had to deal with. And it basically means the, the lesser of two evils. So these two evil, terrible, terrifying things. And for Pitts, the, um, the, the rock of democracy, as it's called, you know, this is representing if Pitt gives in to, if he's got too much of a soft touch, he's going to allow the, the radical ideas or the revolutionaries to kind of, to gain too much sway in London and he might actually invite revolution to happen itself. But if he is too authoritarian and if he seems to be too close to the crown, this upside down crown in the waters, that is the whirlpool of arbitrary power. He will also give people reason to rebel. He'll give radicals reason to think, you know, this is, this is not okay. And so it's a very difficult line to, to go forward with. And um, I think it's a kind of really good example of, of how they could encapsulate these, the, the situations that were going on, quite complex situations in, in just one image. And, you know, in this period, it was described by some historians as Pitt's reign of terror because he basically clamped down completely on radical ideas. You weren't allowed to criticise the king. You weren't allowed to kind of suggest anything revolutionary. And this is a visualisation of that. Here, it's like Gulliver's travel. So here's Gulliver or Pitt, the prime minister. And he's got this wonderful tool 
for, for uh, prevention of seditious meetings. So all he has to do with these radicals is just put this massive cone on them and, you know, that, that can quieten them up, which is luckily for him that he has that. So again, you know, this is by Isaac Cruikshank, this one. It's titled The Royal Extinguisher. So one of the, obviously, you know, the great people to satire at this point, as it is today, the royal family. And, uh, you know, they had great fun making images of the royals. You know, it, this would have really kind of, people would have found this very funny to, to see this in the windows of London. Because, you know, they had a very clear idea that the king should kind of convey this image of majesty. And he, that was part of his duty. And there were a lot of rumours at the time because uh, George was particularly frugal and he had kind of quite ordinary interests, things like farming. He enjoyed talking about turnip yields, that sort of thing. And people, some, you know, there were a lot of rumours that this frugality, which, you know, I think we'd, we'd admire today, would, was actually him being a bit of a miser. And that was, you know, more as if he was kind of hoarding the money, hoarding the gold kind of thing. And that's really played into in this print. So, you know, first of all, George is eating uh, an egg for breakfast, which I don't think is a very, um, you know, it's not a very regal thing to be eating. But his chair is covered with this this sheet as if he's trying to preserve it for you know trying to to maintain its its kind of its sheen if you like if you look at the fireplace behind him there's not a fire on in fact there's some flowers some winter flowers some snowdrops in the grate and even the which is kind of indicating that it's really cold and they're, they're living in this frugal way the character above the fire in the fireplace has actually got his hands kind of warming in a muff. So he's trying to stay warm as well. And, um, you know, the candles aren't lit. And there's all these kind of clues. If you look really carefully at the, the, the paintings, it's like this really fun set of clues that will tell you all of these, indicate all of these characteristics. And if you look behind Queen Charlotte, who's eating a salad leaves, you can see that brown door is actually a kind of uh, stronghold. And, and, and on the door is this list of all the money that they're supposed supposedly hoarding. So, you know, it's a great image that I think people would have loved, loved laughing at. And it's titled Temperance Enjoying a Frugal Meal. But, but that is just one side of the coin because, you know, these artists were brilliant, but I have to say they had an amazing set of characters to be working with. Shakespearean set of characters, you know, and with Shakespeare, when there is somebody like this, who's a frugal, kind of responsible father figure, um, what is the opposite of that? Well, you know, someone who is louche and lazy and, you know, slovenly and indulgent. Well, luckily for Gilray, George III's son was this exact character, the future King George IV, who was the Prince of Wales at the time. And we normally think about George IV through his portraits, grand portraits, um, his, you know, he looks like a kind of hero figure. He's uh, he's got a great figure, and he's looking very smart and put together. But that is a complete fiction. You know, that is a kind of filtered, photoshopped way of looking at, at these people. And what Gilray did was just really portray people in all of their, you know, wonderful, in, as they were true to life. The fact that the central focus of this someone, you know, who we should be revering because he's a, a royal, is this massive swollen stomach, uh, his belly. And, uh, you know, that is not really the kind of royal image that I think they were wanting to convey. And he's kind of slouching in this Hogarthian way and he's picking at his teeth and his, his cheeks are all flush from all the drinking. There's empty wine bottles on the table. There's uh, that enormous piece of meat that he's obviously just been 
actually eating into direct and he's you know look at all those bottles rolling around in the bottom right hand corner there's books from um, gambling uh, there's a there's an overflowing chamber pot there's bills unpaid there's uh, and then behind him uh, slightly above there's all the medical potions you know to try and administer all of his 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 problems in the sash window behind him is a building project and that is the building works of Carlton House which was this enormous sinkhole for public money um, in classic George IV style and spent his whole kind of youth building you know it was all this kind of taxpayers money if you like going into this building project Extru incredibly extravagant and when he becomes king he just knocks it down so obviously you know suddenly they had all of these kind of parts of a building that they were supposed to just knock down and so you do see them in bits of London and actually the columns the capitals of the columns and I've never quite worked out which bit it is but they were reused and they were reused on the National Gallery so they are still part of uh, London's uh, landscape so um, you can go and go and see them see a bit of Carlton House if you like the on the candles we've got the Prince of Wales three ostrich feathers so the symbol of the Prince of Wales but instead of you know perhaps a coat of arms in the center there it's kind of been replaced by Gilray by the tools that this prince holds most dear which is a knife and fork so you know so it's a wonderful little detail that I think people would have loved it loved looking at and the title is a voluptuary under the horrors of digestion. So you know, it's a it's it's a wonderful. I think that's probably one of one of the best prints. These these satirists they made images of everything in society, all all kinds of things that were going on. So you know, there were people at drinking scenes, a drinking society. But you know, when you look at them closely, you can really pick out some hilarious kind of characteristics. They used to drink punch, and they had um that was the kind of drink at the time that they'd just get a big bowl, they'd fill it with these kind of of, um, these different elements of, of drinking, I suppose, and uh, they kind of ladle it out. So that was often a way that people would drink at the time. There are images of people just playing cards. Hannah Humphrey, who was the print seller, and possibly a lady who Gilray had a relationship with. There's kind of like anecdotes of, of things where people, you know, people thought that she was Mrs. Gilray, and. Um, and, you know, there's even kind of a, an anecdote of the fact that Gilray, because Gilray lived with Hannah Humphrey for many years and they worked together that, um, that one day they, and, you know, because they lived together, there was obviously people kind of suspected that there might be something else going on. But there was um, one occasion where Gil, they supposedly went to church together to get married. And then on the door when Gilray, you know, they were going to go in, Gilray says something like, Oh, me thinks Miss Humphrey. This is this is not a good idea. Let's let's just go home. You know, let's not let's not sport, like muddy the waters here. Um, so obviously a bit of a disappointing day out for Hannah, no doubt. But you know, she seems um, she seems quite a fun character. She's you know quite a lot older than Gilray, so um, perhaps more of a motherly figure. We'll probably never know. But you know, they just created images of, of everything. You know, obviously medical kind of issues at the time were great content for, for making fun of people. A guy called Perkins, who was this American who created this, um, he created this medical tool, this medical device where you get two bits of metal and you would, he, you would put it on your, you know, the bit of the body that was in pain. Perhaps you got gout or something like that, or you got a headache or something, um, or you got a toothache, and you could apply these two bits of metal to that area. And Perkins said that it would just, and, and you know, it's a kind of an electric zap, and Perkins said that that would cure it. And everybody at the time, all the experts, 
all of the professionals, all of the medical professionals believed it. And they had loads of dinners to celebrate this wonderful thing. Anyway, it's not true. Like, none of it worked. It didn't work at all. It was completely fake news. Um, but, you know, it's, it's a kind of great story. And this guy Perkins had amazing marketing, basically. You know, he just convinced everyone that it worked. Um, and I think, you know, maybe at this time, it's kind of, you know, it's a time when, like, Frankenstein was being written and lots of ideas about electricity and what that could mean and what that could do. And then another great medical kind of moment is when um, Dr. Jenner, uh, you know, all of the, 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 the smallpox vaccine. So, obviously, that's a great, um, a wonderful moment in, in medical history. But... Um, you know, as we have found in recent years, there was a lot of suspicion about the vaccine. And, um, you know, when you think that people like Perkins are around, perhaps quite rightly so. But uh, they, um, because of the way that small, the smallpox vaccine worked, and they took a bit of the kind of, uh, I'm not quite sure my medical knowledge being touched, but, you know, they, they took a bit of whatever the cowpox, uh, the cowpox was, um, you know, the bit, the infected part of the, the bit that was on, the, like, on an actual cow, and then they used that to treat smallpox. Um, so it, it created all of these rumours, obviously, that, um, you know, you're basically being given this infection from a cow. And that, um, you know, medical people at the day, of, the, of the day, they literally invented the Latin words for these cow, you know, symptoms. And they would, you know, take the Latin, the Latin parts of, like, words of cow and, and try and, you know, just make up these, these kind of terrible conditions. So, you know, it's no surprise that there were a lot of rumours about this kind of time. An image that Gilray has created imagines all of these things. So people being given the the smallpox vaccine and um, you know people come out with, with like cow horns coming out of their their forehead there's people with little cows kind of jumping out of their skin everywhere I mean it's just like ridiculous images but um but you know I mean it's titled the cowpox or the wonderful effects of the new inoculation but you sort of think you know what's Gil what are, what are these artists doing here are they are they in on it are they are they kind of visualising what they think actually could happen? Or I think, you know, in this one, it's Gilroy making fun of people's suspicions, which are obviously just not true. Um, but yeah, I love that one. And then, of course, the big, big thing that Gilroy does, if you had to ask me what's Gilroy's biggest legacy, I'd say the fact that he created the myth, one of the greatest myths in history, that he, he created the idea that Napoleon was a short man, which, ladies and gentlemen, if you did not know, is not true and he is Napoleon was a man of average height uh, he probably would have stood taller than Nelson so um, that's but that was something which at the height of the Napoleonic Wars you know uh, they really created this myth they crea created this character of Napoleon and I love that you know how would you bring down a guy who is the one of the most powerful people in the world you know someone who has crowned themselves emperor in Notre Dame Cathedral, someone who has invaded all these countries, someone who has uh, kind of done, done, had all these in incredibly impressive military triumphs. Well, how would you bring him down? Well, you just, you just paint him as being really short, you know, and that's the way you like get to, get to him. And I think that's how cartoonists do it today, you know, with Trump and things like that. They just really insult him personally. And we think that, you know, Napoleon, it said, really really thought, you know, didn't like these kind of depictions. But a classic kind of image that they created, Napoleon having a massive tantrum, stamping his feet. Um, he's this tiny figure. He's thrown in his rage, this uncontrollable rage, all of the objects away, the table, the globe, the chair, they're all on the floor. And out of his 
head and it's titled Maniac Ravings. It's uh, out of his head are all of these white, these, these yellow flames. And then, you know, right in the center, they're white hot, so fierce and hot and, fu you know, furious. Um, and out of it is coming not sentences, but individual words with exclamation marks at the end. And I think it really reflects you know, if, imagine a toddler who just is so spluttering, they can't even get it out because they're so furious. He's shouting, he's shouting things like, revenge, revenge, evasion, invasion, the British press, the British papers, blah, blah. You know, like you can't even, can't even string the sentence together. He's so furious. So I think that's a great image of either Napoleon or your own toddler, perhaps. I don't know which one's more. The most famous cartoon sometimes, the most famous political cartoon ever made, the plum pudding in danger. And so again, we've got Napoleon on the right, who's very short, um, and then Pitt, who's not been kind of pushed down as a small person. Um, but here they are at perhaps, you know, one of the most remarkable restaurant bookings in history. We have them sitting next to each other and carving up a very popular uh, dish at the time in Britain, a plum pudding, which is a kind of... Um, like a Christmas pudding that you might know today. And it's all steaming. But actually, if you look a bit closer, this plum pudding is actually uh, representing the world. So Pitt is cutting off an enormous slice, and that is actually the Atlantic Ocean. So that's reflecting the British naval superiority at the time. Britain's kind of in the bit in the middle. And then Napoleon's got this great slice that just reads Europe. Um, and that's reflecting their powers at the time. But the, um, it's got this kind of Shakespeare misquote. It's not quite, it's not really quite accurate, but it's kind of a, a spoof on Shakespeare. It says, the great globe itself and all which it inherit is not is too small to satisfy such insatiable appetites and so the commentary on this is really saying it's really talking about the insatiable appetites of world leaders. You know, the fact that, like, isn't France big enough for you? The fact that Napoleon has to carve this massive chunk off, you know, like, it's just greed of these great nations, of these leaders. Um, and so, you know, because of that, it's been used again and again and again. And, you know, many cartoonists of our own age have, have used it because it's come something that sadly still exists today, you know, in, in many different ways. But I think people always talk about Napoleon when it comes to Gilray, but I think one thing that I really noticed by looking at, at lots of these artists is that they're really weird and they're surreal and they're wacky. And I look at some of these images and I think, you could see that in a Dali image and it wouldn't be out of place. The Prime Minister, William Pitt. Um, what, it, what it's representing, it's got this cow pat or this kind of dunghill, and, uh, which is actually the crown. So it's sort of saying the rotten crown. And out of it is growing the Prime Minister, William Pitt. And it's basically a commentary on the, um, you know, Pitt being, uh, it's like the rotten influence or the corruption at the heart of power because actually the Prime Minister is just uh, a, a puppet of, of the king kind of thing. But I just think it's so weird. <laughs> I mean, you know, we have seen 3D imagery. We've seen everything that the world can Photoshop. We've seen everything that Hollywood can throw at us. And yet, and so, you know, we should be totally desensitized to anything weird. And yet I still think this is really weird. And if you, if you imagine someone in the 18th century who had not seen any of these things, I mean, this was a world when, the 18th century was a period when people would go to, um, pub signs in London to go and look at them because they were such a vivid thing to see. I, you know, so imagine if then sometimes, you know, people are suddenly showing these in the windows. It must have been pretty exciting. So that gives you a bit of sense of the, all of the different prints that existed at the time. And I, as I say, you know, that is really the tip of the iceberg. Um, but I thought I might just tell you 
you know, why these were incredibly important and impactful and powerful people and artists at the time. And why have they kind of lost that position uh, in, in our kind of collective mindset? Um, and these, a lot of these artists and a lot of the characters that they depicted, so Pitt and Fox died in 1806, Napoleon died, uh, Nelson died in 1805, and then lots of the artists died in 1810 in the kind of five years after that. And um, so that was a kind of big moment, like it all kind of ended quite abruptly. But then there was also a kind of change in temperament, a change in mood um, in, in kind of society. So I think, I sort of think about it as, you think about the Regency age or, or the kind of 18, you know, the beginning of the 19th century as this really raucous time where people filled the glass up to the, to the top all the time, you know, people lived to the, you know, it was quite an extreme time, as I said, it was a pantomime, it was a circus. And there were all these kind of crude jokes and it was kind of quite out there really in lots of ways. Um, and there was like gambling to excess, like gambling away fortunes in one night, uh, drinking away, you know, drinking so much that you died, like that kind of living. Um, people who visited from abroad were shocked that they allowed to just, they were allowed to get away with it. And they, you know, in lots of ways, Britain was a kind of bastion, or at least Britons like to think of this as like a bastion of freedom of speech, um, because they were allowed to say things that other countries weren't allowed to say. Um, and you know, in St James's, there were shops opposite like the royal palace, and they're making making images of the king in such a way, eating a boiled egg, you know, opposite his own palace, um, and they could get away with it. But um, you know, and often lots of the the people who were featured in the images would actually buy them themselves. Um, but, you know, there were points when they... So in the 1790s, after the French Revolution, um, where it was a very tense time, and they really clamped down. You remember I showed you that image of the cone um, silencing lots of the radical ideas. Um, there were some that were arrested and sent to prison, sent to Newgate Prison. Um, and, and, you know, they definitely did clamp down on more of the radical ideas. But... When they were in Newgate Prison, they put all, you know, put all the ones with kind of radical ideas in together, and then they started thinking, well, you know, it became a bit of a hub of kind of radical ideas. So like, it didn't really work that well. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that's what you have to think about when you're looking at these prints. Is you have to look at it with the knowledge of they, mu you know, it is obviously much easier just to toe the line and um, just give, you know, do something that's favourable to the government, it's not going to get you in trouble. I mean, the Newgate prison was one of the most terrifying places. Uh, it's been in the prison for, for hundreds of years and there were all these rumours about this kind of like black dog that would send you mad and, you know, like all it's like a, a horrifying place. Um, so I'm, I'm sure that, you know, there must have been points where these printmakers were thinking, oh, I really don't fancy Christmas at Newgate, you know, I'd rather just stay here. Um, but, of it, but also, you know, there were various points where they were paid to make certain kinds of images by certain people, you know, like sponsored by the government and stuff. So, so, you know, it's, but one of the big things that people have to try and work out, it's quite hard to work out is, you know, were they reflecting their own opinions? Were they working for someone else? Were they doing it to reflect what they thought people in the street thought? Um, or is this like Gilray putting his own opinion out there? Um, I don't know, it's, it's hard, it's, it's very hard. And there's so many of them that they always sort of change. And I think by the kind of 1820s, if you compare it, you know, as if, if that period was, if the period before was a kind of raucous party, the 1820s was a point where everybody had gone to bed, had woken up, and they were a bit hungover, and they're looking back at it in the sober light of day, and they're thinking, like, actually, 
that was actually a bit embarrassing. Like, that's actually a bit off. And actually, I think, like, you know, let's be a bit more wholesome and, um, you know, we can, we're better than this um, sort of thing. And, um, you know, there's a few different things that happen. So there's a lot of, uh, like, anxiety about grave robbing. Um, people used to steal things, steal people's graves from medical research. Um, there's a lot of um, various reasons, but there was a lot of issue with, you know, people were nervous about homosexuality in society. And um, there's this kind of, like, new Christian movement that came about. And, um, you know, I think you best see it in the works of Thomas Bowdler, who's a man who removed the blemishes from Shakespeare to make them seem more family friendly, kind of editing them to make, um, to make it th this, more, this more kind of uh, wholesome, I suppose, way of looking at things. And, you know, maybe in, in many ways they, they had a point. But um, basically, during the Victorian period, the way that they write about Gilray and Rowlandson and Cruikshank is that they are terrible, terrible individuals who wasted their energy, wasted their talents, that they wasted on crude art, um, you know, that, that, that their art was just full of disgusting images, horrible jokes. Um, it was terrible, you know, it was just like a terrible thing all around. It was totally off brand for the Victorian way of life. Um, and interestingly, you know, we do see a change in the generation. So Isaac Cruikshank, he was a man who drank to excess. He lived his life making a lot of quite crude, weird, wacky images. And he actually died in 1811 from a drinking competition. But, you know, in the records, people say, like, he died, but he, he won the competition. So, like, you know, it's okay. Um, and people say, like, he, he died as he lived kind of thing. Um, and in contrast, so he had, he had a son who was um, set to be a second Gilray, another brilliant artist. Um, but his son was really pushed away from following in his father's footsteps. There was no, like, oh, you know, second generation, no, none of that. It was all, let's, you know, you should never waste your talents in the way that your father's generation did. Don't do it, you know, apply yourself to a better kind of art. Um, something much more respectable. You're not, you know, you're better than that kind of thing. And so uh, George Cruikshank, um, who was the son, he did not do political satires. He went towards illustrating books, especially the books of Charles Dickens. And that was also because there was a kind of change in technology. So um, the, you know, you could print images in books, you could, you could start to print, um, you know, images in newspapers and periodicals. So that's why we have the kind of emergence of punch. Um, and so, you know, in many ways, the, the age of the print shop window was out and it was the age of the kind of satirical magazine. But um, I think it's really interesting to look at George Cruikshank because he is so different from his father. He was a famous teetotaler. He campaigned for teetotalism. He, um, he did these kind of really super family friendly, you know, images that illustrate Charles Dickens's books today. Um, and he was really heralded as this great family man who was, you know, they wrote about him, there was never a more true, a more honest man that could ever live. And, you know, so this, this is kind of the Victorian way of looking at it, that they really hated the Georgian artists, but they really heralded people like George Cruikshank, which would be fine, except there is a bit of hypocrisy here, because George Cruikshank championed teetotalism, you know, he uh, was uh, buried, he had, a, he, had, he had a top space in St Paul's Cathedral, buried beside heroes such as uh, Wellington and Nelson, you know, he's a really VIP, top-notch, you know, in terms of British heroes uh, and British kind of famous names of the Victorian age. And he, and yet, 
in the days after he died. So he lived with a lady, you know, he, he lived with his wife um, called Eliza, who he apparently loved very much. They never had any children. It's very sad, but, uh, you know, that's, that's fine. Um, and it was fine until Eliza found out a few days, or, you know, in the, in the days after his death, that all, everything, he had left everything to, not to another lady called Adelaide Attree, who used to be a maid in their household. And actually, it turned out that George Cruikshank had been, you know, lovely, kind, honest, true George Cruikshank, had been supporting this maid for many, many years in a house nearby to their own. And once more, whilst he had not had any children with his wife, he had, with Adelaide, 11 children. <laughs> so that is the kind of hypocrisy we're talking about here. These are the people who were cancelling, you know, the likes of Gilray. Um, and, you know, for various reasons, I mean, the Victorians wrote pretty, pretty powerfully and effectively about Gilray, um, so much so that by the mid-century even, nobody in London really, unless, you know, only the keenest kind of print collectors knew of Gilray's name, amazingly. Um, and lots of the prints, lots of the original metal plates were destroyed, so it's pretty cool that we've got one in here behind us. Um, but they, um, you know, they kind of eradicated him um, off the, off the table, and you know, whilst people like William Blake, who was a direct contemporary of, of Rowlandson, um, you know, was really heralded as this great artist. And, and Blake had lived in the shadow of Rowlandson when they were alive. Um, so it's this massive reversal. And for various reasons, Gilray hasn't really come back in as a major, major figure. You know, he's often used in textbooks as a kind of illustrative device, but nothing more than that. He hasn't really made it to the main narrative of history of art. Um, and uh, th that, is, that is something which I'm sort of on a mission to change because, of course, Gilray is everywhere with us today. You know, the creators of Spitting Image said that they owed Gilray a royalty payment because of his influence. And he actually is in Spitting Image. And, of course, you know, the plum pudding in danger is used again and again and again uh, on different different, um, you know, I mean, the cover of The Spectator, you know, that's a, I feel like it's a pretty big impact, a pretty important kind of image to be, to be pushing everywhere. So, of course, the plum pudding itself has been replaced with whatever the kind of big issue that everyone's fighting over at the time. Maybe it's a COVID vaccine, maybe it's the COVID virus, maybe it's, you know, whatever, um, and, and they've just been replaced with different political characters. It's everywhere, it's all the time they're bringing out these images. Well, yeah, I mean, it, I suppose it's funny how, like, you know, the the themes are always the same of like, oh, someone's having an affair with it, you know, or like so-and-so is corrupt or the rotten corruption. I mean, that's such a good one of um, George IV, who's like sitting there with his stomach out and like, you know, eating and just like lazing in public funds. And then there's one, I think someone did one of, um, you remember the expenses scandal? And it was just like a guy who was, the person who's supposed to be looking over it was like not paying attention, and they just replaced him as uh, him as the you know the, the guy who was kind of managing all of that. But it's, it's just you know it's, it's amazing how often they can be used again and again. Um, but I think that's because they're such weird, like striking images that you can just replace them, and it still is effective. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I love them, and I've only looked at you know scratched the surface of it, and I'm sure I don't know. Is there anyone here who's like a really keen collector? Probably knows lots. Are you? Yeah. Um, like people, like lots of cartoonists and like private eye people talking about this regarding kind of like recently we've had people like Trump and Boris Johnson, and they're just like almost caricatures in their own right. Um, so it, it's interesting. Um, 
Yeah, I, I think, you know, they did have this amazing set of characters, George III and George IV, who said, but then also, you know, Charles James Fox, who's that kind of like, he was known as this kind of like quite overweight, um, you know, he'd come in incredibly, you know, with drink on his like clothes and like, he's obviously like been out, probably hasn't even been asleep, like been to sleep yet. Um, but, and then on, on his opposition was this guy Pitt, who was like so lanky and tall, you know, physically so different. Um, and also just like very prim and kind of diligent and hardworking. Um, but both of them were brilliant. Like both of them were some of the best orators we've ever had in politics, uh, but just in the most opposite way you could ever imagine. Um, and I think you know a lot of the a lot of the images are based on opposites, and that's what's so funny is that you've got these complete opposites, you know, compared to each other all the time. So I think you know it definitely helped to have such a good cast. Um, you know, you've got to think about it like if Gilray was the, the director of a movie, but he's got this amazing set of actors, like that does help a lot. But, you know, it's, it's, I, mean, I, think, I still think Gilray probably could have made something funny out of, out of anything, really. <laughs> Dave Brown, a few weeks ago, you know, actually came to my launch party and he, he's, I, showed, I showed everyone this image. And then the days afterwards, he, he, he said, you know, I remember I, you reminded me how brilliant these images are. So he, um, he updated it for, for today's world. But yeah, I hope that gives you a sense. I know it's a very whirlwind tour and it's a very, there's a lot to take in. Um, but I hope um, that gives you a sense of, of kind of what it is that these artists are about. And um, I hope that, you know, if you're not already an avid Gilray fan, which I'm sure there are some here, um, that you, you do one day become one. Um, thank you very much. Thank you. <laughs>
probably was easier. But um, I mean, Gilray was used as a kind of war artist at one point. So I think like one of the only times he went abroad was when he went to go and see, there was a moment um, in 1790s where he went out to the, one of the battlefields and he went and sketched loads of, um, like loads of the, he helped this guy called Philip de Luthenberg um, and he, he, he just did loads of sketches of the camp and then you know this, this guy made this massive painting afterwards but he he like you know he kind of used Gilray's sketches to, to piece this image together and they went back and they showed it to George III and um, George III was like what like what do you I, he was just like not impressed with he was like really impressed by the great artist and he was like oh why did you go Gilroy <laughs> but you know so but you know all of this kind of like so anecdotal so it's like hard to know quite what happened but. But, you know, all of it's, it's hard to work out, all of it. So maybe, you know, if anyone else wants to write a book in contradictory, then uh, go for it. You know, I'm sure there's lots to work out. Everybody could own a Gilray printer they want. You know, you can go to Grosvenor Prints in Common Garden. I bought one for £60. That's pretty cool, I think. Um, you know, the reason it was cheap is it had all these, like, scuffed edges, but which all the collectors don't like. But I was like, you know, I'll, I'll, do, I'll, I'll be happy with that. Um, but, you know, they're in lots of private collections. There's loads in the British Museum. You know, it's all here. There's loads in um, lots of different kind of collections. Um, but, but there are lots out there, I mean, because of the nature of them being prints, that there, are, there were loads that were made at the time. But of course, the, in some ways, the like, original piece of art is the metal plate, right. and loads of those were thrown away. Like, they're all, it's amazing that they were kind of destroyed in some ways. In the Royal Collection, lots were destroyed by Prince Albert, who thought they were too outrageous for Victoria to look at. Um, but yeah, so like, you know, yeah, lots, lots were destroyed. Um, but you know there are lots there are lots out there. You could honestly you could buy loads like today if you want, and and they're not like really expensive as 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 like a historic artifact, you know, a couple of hundred pounds or something, which I think is pretty good. It's much more compelling looking at this than a you know a, a pit speech, <laughs> um, you know, reading one of those. But the other thing with print, I think like another reason why we haven't kind of considered them as great artists is because there are so many prints out there. So that people don't think of it like it doesn't have the cachet of going to the national gallery, it being hung in the national gallery with like a really beautiful kind of wallpaper and like um, you know in a big frame and stuff. I mean, it's quite unusual, I think, to see them framed in this way. Like I was at an, a gallery, an exhibition recently in the Somerset House, and it was all they were all framed, and they were they were like framed in Somerset House really beautifully, and it made you are like obviously this is a piece of art, like obviously it is. But so often you see them just like in someone's collection, or they're just like in a massive pile, and it's like you just leaf through. And I think almost you know if they put loads of them in the National Gallery, then everyone would be like, oh yeah, obviously this is part of our national story. Well, why aren't they? In the, why aren't there some in the National Gallery? Like it's mental. Yeah. There's Hogarth's Hogarth did do paintings. So I think that's why he's considered like a great artist. And people, you know, Hogarth, if Hogarth's considered a great artist, I mean, in the history of art, they often, you know, they'll put cave art in and they'll put like, they might even put Banksy in. And I think if you're gonna put, if you're gonna consider those kind of people as like the artists, then like Gilroy definitely deserves to be there. Um, but anyway, on that note, I must let you go. I'm just, I could talk about it forever, but thank you so much. Um, Alice Loxton's book, Uproar, Satire, Scandal and Printmakers in Georgian London, which delves into the lives of cartoonists Thomas Rowlandson, Isaac Cruikshank and James Gilray, is available from Icon Books, who you can find at iconbooks.com and in all good bookshops. Alice is a prolific historian and communicator 
whose short videos about the topic can be found on such platforms as TikTok and Instagram. And you can find a list of these on her website, aliceloxton.com. That's A-L-I-C-E-L-O-X-T-O-N.com. I interviewed Alice about her book, and you can hear my Q&A with the historian by going to www.panelborders.wordpress.com. My interview with Alice was recorded at the Cartoon Museum on Well Street in London, where if you're interested in the origins of comics, it's well worth a look as they have examples of early satirical prints by the likes of Cruikshank and Gilray in their permanent exhibition, alongside temporary exhibitions which are currently on display in the gallery, including Norman Thelwell Saves the Planet, ecological cartoons by the popular horse cartoonist, and that runs until Sunday the 3rd of September. They also have an exhibition called She Is My Daughter, All of Her Is Me, looking at the art of artist Ella Barron, who worked with the NGO Médecins Sans Frontières in 2019, and that's on display until Sunday the 8th of October. And opening in September is an exhibition looking at 30 years of the wrong trousers, an exploration of the classic Ardman animated film, which runs from the 12th of September till the 15th of April 2024. The Cartoon Museum also have a number of events throughout the summer, including workshops on manga on Tuesday the 8th of August, a session training youngsters on how to make caricatures on the morning of Wednesday the 9th of August, and then that afternoon, a workshop on how to create superheroes. On Thursday the 10th of August, a workshop on how to make mini-comics. And these continue throughout August. If you're looking for ideas to get your kids out into drawing comics and educate them about the history of the medium. You can find more info about the Cartoon Museum by going to cartoonmuseum.org. And the museum is open Tuesday to Sunday from 10.30am to 5.30pm, with late openings on Thursday until 8pm. In the second half of today's show, we move from the 18th century to the 19th, as comics academic Benoit Peters looks at the history of modern comics, starting with the work of Rodolphe Toffler in the 19th century, and then his numerous successors who developed the form through the late 19th century and into the 20th. Peters is probably best known as the co-creator of the long-running Bon Dessinée series Les Cities Obscures with artist François Schouten. But here he's wearing his hat as an academic, a role that he performed for a number of years at Lancaster University, in a talk and Q&A that was recorded at Manchester Museum in the spring of this year at an event called Comics Up Close, organised by the comic art festival LICAF, which takes place in the Lake District in autumn every year. Thanks a lot. I will try in a few minutes to give you an idea of the art of comics, why I love it, why we love it in its different forms. Certain people say the grandfather of comics is Rodolphe Töpfer. He was born in Geneva in the end of 18th century and during his short life he did a major work because he believed in a new form of art. He was not just a creator, 
but also a theorician about comics. And when we look to his portrait, we, we, we can see his glasses, and maybe those glasses are a secret origin of comics, uh, because he had a sort of eye illness, and he wanted, as a young man, to be a painter as his father, but he thought that uh, he was not good enough, clear enough, but he was able to write, he was able to draw caricatures, he was able to, to play a theater plays, which was very important for him, and um, he was also a, a professor, and for the joy of the uh, students, he draw some stories at the beginning very privately. And the great, great uh, German author, Goethe, saw the manuscripts when he was very old and was fascinated and encouraged Töpfer to publish it. So in 1833, the first story, Monsieur Jabot, was published as a book, not in a newspaper. And Töpfer wrote a small review, uh, only with his initials, about comics and defining what it could be. So this little book is of a mixed nature. It's, it is composed of a series of autograph line drawings, line drawings. Each of the drawings is accompanied by one or two lines of text. The drawings without this text would only be obscure in meaning. The text without the drawings would mean nothing. The whole continues a sort of novel, all the more original in that it does not resemble a novel more than anything else. This is the first definition of comics and with the idea that there is something new. It's not just an addition of words and images but it's the idea that there is a transformation, specific dynamic going from text to image and from image to text. We don't have speech balloons in the seven uh, stories drawn, created by Töpfer, but we have a lot of other inventions. First invention is that to, to, to draw the text with the same instrument uh, as the drawings, to, to try to do both in the same form with a great freedom. And you can see in, in this first published story, you can see the insertion of music, you can see the insertion of an image in the image, uh, a dream. Uh, this is extraordinary because it directly invented in this small form, going from left to right, so many things. And here we, we, we see some sort of parallel editing and a lot of people think, oh, this was an invention for the movies. It, it was created at the end of uh, 19th century or beginning of 20th century. But we see here two parallel stories uh, perfectly connected with those very small images, the, way, the very funny way to, to insert a text and, and so on. We could show many, many examples of Töpfer because in each of his stories he tried new things. And to use the drawings not only as a picture, as a representation, but as a series of uh, 
signs, small elements that you can combine. And of course, we understand that those images have to be read and understood together, not one by one. What is also very important in Töpfer's art is that he wrote an essay, an essay in a form close to comics because of the insertion of drawings in the text at the, the exact place uh, that the image is needed. And is in this essay of Physiognomy, which was partially translated into English recently, he explained that something new is happening. It's not to have the idea of a story, to have the idea of a text and then put images to illustrate it. The idea, the basic idea of Töpfer is to take the human face as the basis of the language. So what happens with the human face? What happens? You have, you need to have this character easy to recognize. But to have an interesting story, you need to have a lot of transformations of the face. This is a non-permanent aspect of the human face. And so the basis of Töpfer's story is the idea of the transformation of a drawing. A drawing is continued step by step, but expresses a lot of things. And years ago, I was in Tokyo, I was discussing with mangakas, and they said, oh, but your Töpfer, he was really a mangaka. Because it's exactly the problem that we have. A simplified face, but a lot of expressions, and the possibility to read on the face some aspects of his emotions and of the story. So this was Töpfer. During the 19th century, we have mixed forms. Some artists are working for the book, and a lot of artists will work for the press. But Gustave Torre, famous engraver, uh, at the beginning of his career, created three important comic books, continuing the heritage of Töpfer, because Töpfer was directly very influential. He was imitated in many countries and translated. In Töpfer's stories, you see it's sort of line. You could put all the pages on a wall and read them from left to right. But some compositions in the wonderful book of uh, Gustave Doré, the story is hmm, politically <laughs> possible to criticize, but there are a lot of inventions and, and symbolic in inventions. So to give the idea of a thing and not only to represent it, and also to give an idea with different images on the same page. Uh, one of the first female artists now recognized are very important was half French, half British, Marie Duval. And she worked for Alice Lopper and uh, for a long period she was forgotten, uh, censored, but now we rediscover the remarkable compositions, the decorative ideas that were important, not in every page. But um, during the whole 19th century, there was a great, great freedom. People were trying in different directions. They didn't want just to tell a classic story, but more to experiment with drawings and words. 
without any word, without any speech balloon, because speech balloon is not a necessary part of definition of comics. It's, it's one major possibility, but you can work in, in contemporary comics. Many artists work with, with silent uh, stories, always other type of insertions of, of words. Sometimes the general composition works perfectly, but the idea that to go from left to right and, and, and to, to, to go through the page in that way was not so obvious. It had to be uh, invented or it was possible in a way to, to try to make it differently. It's very important to, 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 to understand this idea. The French artist Carandache uh, published in color. It, 1988, we have a perfect order, one, two, three, four, five, six. And what is incredible is that we just have a title, how to create a masterpiece. And I think this is a masterpiece, but of course it's ironic. And some people say that comics were invented with the Yellow Kid, 1895. But they have to explain to me why this isn't comics. Uh, because for us, this could have been created three years ago. And we understand the story, we see the idea of modern art, the caricature, maybe the admiration, an artist in an impressionist way, like Monet maybe, impression, but also something like Jackson Pollock. And the idea is that comics is playing with the idea of art, is laughing about art, but also admiring. And the art of Carandash is great. Yellow Kid, this famous Yellow Kid, created in the American newspaper at the end of 19th century. And of course, the Yellow Kid is very important because he became very, very popular. And after the success of Yellow Kid, every American newspaper wanted to have their own comics character. So it was not the question of inventing in one page or two pages. It was the idea to create a character that you recognize and you, 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 you can have different adventures and you can do some merchandising about him. Our magazine, this was very important. And so we can say that at the end of the 19th century, we have the second birth of comics, the birth of comics as a popular media. And at that time, especially on Sunday, the Sunday pages were printed in color and they were magic because the newspapers were very big, very big, very impressive. So each page has to be read, but also to be looked at carefully because people had not so many images at that time. And it was not intended only for children. It was for her whole family. It was for everybody. At the beginning, Topfer was far away from the modern idea of comics. Uh, uh, Outcove was far away. Topfer was more close. Outcove created a lot of pages but at a certain moment, 1896, we have the yellow kid playing with this new photograph. And we have always uh, uh, some text on 
on the yellow kid himself, but here we have some speech balloons coming from the phonograph, from the machine, but not really from the machine, from a parrot. And speech balloons were a sort of joke. It, it, it was to laugh about uh, new inventions and so. But, but the readers loved it. And then Outco decided to continue, even if it's with a mixed system, you still have uh, some, some other type of text, but it became very popular and many, many artists used it for. One of the major artists, one of the first geniuses in the history of comics is, of course, Winsor Mackey. And the idea of Winsor Mackey was working for children and for adults. In this series, uh, Dream of the Rare Bit Finch, it's more like nightmares. So it's more for adults. And the basic idea is the power of transformation. Each page of Mackey is the simple story of one transformation. So you want to have hair, but then you will have maybe little too much. Some incredible pages, beginning of 20th century. He drew so much that he used the name Silas for some of his pages. And certainly Sigmund Freud, who was writing about dreams, the same period would have been fascinated by such a page. Incredible page. Little Nemo is a masterpiece. Little Nemo, we can see the freedom in the use of colors. At the beginning, we have some caption text under the images because maybe Mackay was not sure that it was as easy to understand and to read. Now we see that. We, we, we could perfectly understand the page without the captions, but it was the beginning and even the idea to go from left to right and then second line, third line, it, it was built in a way. Of course, this idea of the wall impression that a, a page can give, it's not just an addition of panels. The effect here is direct, is incredible, the elephant taking all the place. The title is drawn as an art form and we could say so much about um, Winsor Mackey and if you haven't read Little Nemo in Slumberland, I highly recommend you to, to, to read this masterpiece because each page is an invention. At the end, you come back to reality, the poor little Nemo uh, is awake. His parents are desperate, but they cannot do anything. And we enjoy it because he dreams so, so, so much. And there is a sort of continuity from one page to another. But the most important project for Mackay is to give uh, this whole idea of one page. This is the conquest of the page. Maybe the most famous page of Little Nemo. The idea of the transformation of the bed step by step. The walking bed. The bed doesn't use shoes. And we are inside. We understand it perfectly. Two characters in, in the bed. Something is happening. 
and then how we go from inside to outside. Of course, it's impossible. The bed is, is too big, but with the drawings it works, and through the buildings, bigger and bigger, and the Art Nouveau, and higher images, and then this perfect way to go from one image to another. And this is so natural, done with such art. In a way, there is no progress in comics history, because it was already perfect. <laughs> and the idea to play with the medium, which is constant in Winsomaki's work. Other artists, other major artists like George Rurryman with Crazy Cat, very simple situation, three characters, a strange surrealistic love story, and a lot of inventions in each page, a strange language. Comics as an art, in a way, with, with dialogue, which could be in James Joyce novels, and very difficult to, to, to translate or to understand incredible inventions during 40 years. It was never very, very successful, but the owner of the newspaper wanted to continue this crazy cat masterpiece. A painter like Feininger created comics in the beginning of the 20th century with two series, the Kinder Kids and We Were a Winking World. Some pure poetic work it's not really a story, it's a way to arrange images together, to give impression, emotions, a pleasure of color. It's art. And I'm always sad when I see a painting by Feininger in a museum that nobody mentions that he was also a major comics creator, because he was an artist in both forms, not only as a painter. And it's the same universe. In some contemporary comics, we, we, we find the same type of thing. One major, major artist recently rediscovered, especially by Chris Ware, uh, was Frank King. And he created this wonderful, extraordinary story called uh, Gasoline Alley. Uh, it's the story of an orphan and a man, the man is uh, Uncle Walt and the boy is Kizix. Walt finds this little boy in, in front of his door and we will see the boy growing and becoming a big boy and then an adolescent and, and, and an adult. And each page shows one element of this strange and beautiful education. But of course, an education to comics how to invent a specific space between two dimensions and three dimensions. Of course, what he's doing, Uncle Walt, is impossible in a way, in a realistic point of view. But on the page, we understand it perfectly. This is a specific way to create comics. This education to art, to colors, how to transform the landscape. Uh, this also is a perfect modern masterpiece. It was republished recently. It was forgotten for a very long period because the history of comics is 
difficult to tell because a lot of material was published in the newspapers and the newspapers were difficult to find so we had more an history about the books than about the uh, magazines. Adventure comics in the 20s and 30s, science fiction, fantastic story, historic story like Flash Gordon by Alex Raymond. How beautiful it can be, just one single panel. If we stop on one panel, we see, oh yes, this is incredible. The use of black and white, the composition of the page. And we can see the same thing about another major artist, Milton Caniff. And uh, Terry and the Pirates was a long, long story. And it, it began with just almost nothing, but at a certain moment it became very intense, very dramatic and with the use of composition and sometimes very simple with a lot of white and sometimes very sophisticated panels. The death of a character, we go to silence and people were so deeply moved that they wrote to Milton Caniff for years, for years, to say how sad they were to, 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 to see the death of Raven. A few words about Hergé. I'm a sort of specialist of Hergé. I was lucky enough to, to, to know the man. Not, it, it was not like that when I met him. I met him 40 years later. And the, just the beginning of Tintin, very simple, black and white, with an incredible dynamic. Of course, it's not a style that we are used to, but it was already perfect in this genre. And it tried from book to book in black and white and then in color to invent different things. For this story, The Blue Lotus, he worked with, with a um, uh, Chinese student who helped him a lot. And every inscription, every text, was drawn by Chang and has a meaning. Now Tintin is very successful in China and Chinese people can understand. So it says, don't buy foreign products. You see, my Chinese is perfect. Um, the Black Island, first trip of Tintin to the UK and how simple, how perfect, how efficient it is. So many things happen, but in a very, very simple way. And he continued to progress and he gave an epic dimensions with this specific story. He was using comics in so many interesting ways. For example, we think when we remember the story that we have seen the captain falling, but it was not necessary. It was not necessary to, to, to show it. But the real meaning is to, to understand after so many years the new possibilities of comics, how to combine those pictures to tell something that no one of the image is specifically telling. In the quest of the poor Chang lost in the Himalaya, and they are desperate. How could we find him? And the landscape is continuing. It's such a beautiful way. This was a sort of invention, and it was imitated. So many artists we could comment, and some were working for years only with a few characters. And of course, the peanuts with 
four images a day. They entered in the memory of so many people and they were part of their life and they were as something like paper friends. Paper friends, it's a very important idea for the art of comic strip. And he also, in the simplicity of Charles Schultz's work, how beautiful it is. With this female artist in France, Claire Bletrochet, we see, we should see it more carefully, but we see that we can tell a story with only a few words, maybe only one word, and you can tell a story if you consider specifically the drawings and the small transformations. Of course, many pages of British use great dialogues, but it's, it's interesting to see that with some graphic variations you can do so much. Then we enter in the idea of the graphic novel. It was called in France Roman en bande dessinée, a novel in comics form in the middle of the 70s by Hugo Pratt to give strong impressions like a novel with characters, with, with deep emotions, with a lot of inventions also. And of course, when we speak about graphic novels, we cannot forget the art of Art Spiegelman, uh, this incredible and terrible story of mouse, which was so important, not only as a masterpiece, but because it opened the doors of so many bookshops and libraries to comics and consider more seriously uh, comics, of course, is a story of his father, is a story of the Holocaust, but it's also the beginning of autobiography, Art Spiegelman and his father, and the memory. Graphic novels can take different forms and Probably the work uh, written by Alan Moore for V for Vendetta or Watchmen were as influential as Mouse in a different way. And then we saw the possibility for comics to treat every subject, to treat very personal matters, like in this very, very important book, Fun Home by Alison Bechdel also autobiography, the discovery of her homosexuality, of the homosexuality hidden uh, of her father, a very personal uh, story, very literary story, and this book entered in the academic world as mouse. In, in France, an Iranian young author created Persepolis, Majan Satrapi, very simple drawing, but a very strong story. In the United States, some people were inventing, inventing new forms like Craig Thompson with, with such a subtle way to manage with words and image, to combine them, to use freely with the form of the page, the double page, and the whole book, because it's a 600-page book. He continued with Habibi. He uses comics art as a natural language, as an evidence. Text and image combine in such a beautiful way, Arabic writing. In Japan, just one example with the story of Kiriko Nanana and the friendship between two girls, the love story between those girls, simplicity. To stop in a moment, 
to give an impression with only details, to use a page with no image, but the beautifully drawn text. It's incredible. But of course, if you translate it, if you lose Japanese writing, Japanese vertical writing, you lose a lot. There are so many others. But just to give idea, an idea of the freedom in the use of comics, three major artists here by Richard Maguire, the story of one place through the years, through the centuries, the transformation of a place with a new way to include panels in the whole page. Incredible experience, something really new, a new way to invent comics. One of the contemporary genius, Chris Ware, incredible, working with images, working with text, working with very, very sophisticated pages, believing in the possibility to express everything in comics, as in a movie, as in, in high art, as in a sophisticated novel, to give impressions that are not only the continuity, but different impressions coming at the same moment. And we have to reorganize it, like in our brain. Symbolic image, dreams, like in Tupfe Jabot. A book that is not even a book building stories, but a combination of 15 forms. Uh, extraordinary experimental way, work. And last example, Emil Ferris, who created one masterpiece, my favorite thing is Monsters, using in a totally new way the language of comics. It's said that it's the notebook of a young girl, very talented young girl, of course. And she uses different type of language, different ways of integration of texts and images. And so the story is still continuing. And you can see how powerful are comics and that they really are a form of art, a specific form of art, because what they are doing perfectly, no other media could do it. Thank you. And Sorry to have been a little too long. Uh, you were saying, Benoit, that uh, comics do things that other media can't do, and I absolutely agree with you. But also, I wonder, with some of the innovations in the form, if you actually see the influence of other media coming in. So, for example, that page uh, by Winsor Mackay, where the elephant is getting closer and closer. Mackay was also a filmmaker. And that was made around the same time that we hear these apocryphal stories of audiences watching early silent movies and a train coming towards the screen and them running out of the cinema, which I think probably never happened, but is a lovely story. Do you think, see things like that you know, encroaching? Yes. Um, Mackey worked also as a um, theoretical uh, artist. He presented his films on stage and drew on stage, so he was a multimedia artist and certainly there are a lot of influences. But the problem is sometimes people think that comics are something under the movies and the, the best thing 
which can happen to when comic artists is to be adapted to, to movies. But I think that there were a lot of influences in both sides. I love also movies, of course, but I don't think that comics are inferior and they can invent something. Um, the images are shown together on the page on the double page, we have the freedom when we are in a book to look at it first quickly and carefully to, to stop an image and this, this is extraordinary. And also we don't need so much money to, yeah, yeah. to, to, to create a story. The example of Persepolis is incredible because we had this young woman deciding to, to, to tell an autobiographical story about her childhood and Let's imagine that she came to a movie producer and said, I would like to make an uh, um, animation, a uh, long movie about my childhood. And people would have said, nobody would be interested. But they, she created the book, the book was successful, and then she was able to transform the story and to make the animation movie. This is the freedom um, that we have now with, with comics. Everybody with patience and talent can create a story, and if it's a good one, it can be successful. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. This is not the case for, for every form of art. If you want to create an opera, you need to convince a lot of people and to find a lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe there needs to be more comic book adaptations of opera to get the productions put on. Um, and then someone like uh, Feininger, um, you know, he kind of has dialogue with other kind of German expressionist fine artists, and you can see some of the rendering of what was going on in fine art in Germany at the time, then also turning up in his comics. And that's something you very rarely see, a dialogue between comics and fine art. So it's fascinating to see these historical examples where occasionally that does happen. Yes, and now we have a lot of comics artists presenting their work in art galleries or museums. And Matotti, for example, an Italian artist, he is also an illustrator, a painter. And I would say that the uh, frontier between high art and comic art uh, is, now, is now very close. And a lot of exchanges uh, are possible. And, and some Comics artists are great, great artists even outside of comics, but they are also great artists in their simple and small pages. And there is also some modest art of comics like Charles Schulz, which is, or Bill Watterson, or other theories, which is very, very precious. So we don't need to have the idea that if you work that size, uh, it's just commercial, and if you create a large painting, it's art. This is a stupid idea. And when we look at some images that inspired Roy Lichtenstein, uh, we can see that there was already art in the single panels uh, created by those forgotten artists. Yeah. I mean, I'd like to think we're now living in an era where that prejudice is evaporating, because I interviewed Bar Barbara Nesson a few years ago, who's a fine artist who also does comics. 
and they showed her work at the V&A and they showed work that clearly included her interest in comics but nowhere in the catalogue of the exhibition did they use the C word uh, comics um, you know to talk about her work which just showed that there was still this prejudice in the art world but hopefully events uh, like today you know at a, a major museum are showing that that prejudice is breaking down I mean obviously you know in Europe we have the idea of the ninth art that it is appreciated but hopefully now in Britain and other countries it is also being recognised as such. Yes. Indeed. Uh, Benoit. <laughs> uh, Benoit, thank you very much. Thank you very much. For more info about Benoit Peter's work on the long-running series La Cité Obscure with artist Francois Schouten, please go to their website theobscurecities.com. As mentioned earlier, Benoit's talk was recorded at Comics Up Close, an annual academics comic conference which is part of the Lakes International Comic Art Festival. The next Comics Up Close will be taking place in spring 2024, but in the meantime, the main Lakes International Comic Art Festival is returning to Bowness on Windermere from Friday the 29th of September to Sunday the 1st of October. Guests at this year's LICAF include Simpsons artist Bill Morrison, comedians Frankie Boyle and Josie Long, legendary Cerebus background artist Gerhard, acclaimed graphic novelists Brian and Mary Talbot, Walking Dead artist Charlie Adlard, superhero artists Michael Lark, Sean Phillips and Steve Parkhouse, and many, many more. For more info about the Lakes International Comic Art Festival, please go to comicartfestival.com. If you'd like to know more about some of the comics which Benoit Peters spoke about in his talk, there are other podcasts at www.panelborders.wordpress.com which will help illuminate the creation of some of these comics. These include comics academic Christina Mayer talking about the history of The Yellow Kid, in such strips as McFadden's Flats and Hogan's Alley. And I've interviewed a number of the creators that Benoit Peters mentions as being pioneers of the medium, including Chris Ware, who you can hear me talking to about his book, Building Stories and other titles, Richard Maguire, who I chatted to about his amazing graphic novel here, and Alan Moore talking about various projects of his, including From Hell, Lost Girls, and his H.P. Lovecraft adaptations. Also on Panel Borders, you can hear guest presenters talking to other luminaries of the comic book world, including former comics laureate Hannah Berry chatting to Alison Bechdel about Fun Home, The Secret of Superhuman Strength, and Dykes to Watch Out For, and film critic Virginie Selavy talking to Marjan Satrapi about her graphic novel Persepolis. You can find links to all of these in the post related to today's podcast, panelborders.wordpress.com, stroke 2023, stroke 08, stroke 03. There are various comic events taking place in London and across the home counties. At Forbidden Planet Megastore on Shaftesbury Avenue, they have a signing of The Immortal Thor by writer Al Ewing on Saturday the 26th of August from 2 to 3 p.m., and then on Saturday the 9th of September, a launch event for the new comic The Devil's Cut from nascent publisher Distillery. And that's taking place on Saturday the 9th of September 
from 3 to 4 p.m. For more info about all Forbidden Planet events, please go to forbiddenplanet.com stroke plu stroke events. The next Ladies Do Comics meeting is taking place online on Monday the 11th of September at 7 p.m. With this month's speakers, including Sarah Akintoinwa, a cartoonist, illustrator and writer, who during the first lockdown of COVID-19 created the comic Oyin and Koyo, which now features in the New Yorker magazine. Also speaking is Lena Garbe, a Lebanese-Danish cartoonist, who is also an associate professor at the American University of Beirut, and is founding director of the Rada and Mutaz Safaf Center for Arab Comic Studies. Last and by no means least, their third guest on the 11th of September is Emma Reynolds, a children's illustrator and author based in Manchester. Her debut, Amara and the Bats, won the Nautilus Award, as well as the JLG Gold Standard Best in STEM Award and an Empathy Lab title for 2022. Her latest collaboration, Drawn to Change the World, 16 Youth Activists, 16 Artists, began as a hashtag, Kid Lit for Climate, and is published next month. You can book tickets by going to ldcomics.com. LD Comics are also running a one-to-one training session led by cartoonist and graphic novelist Wallace Eats, and she'll be providing consultations for graphic novelists and cartoonists who want to join in with their project Safe Space for Hard Stories, a reflective practice support group for autobiographical comic makers. You can buy this £25 course by going to tinyurl.com stroke LDC stories. Gosh, have a couple of signings with creators of genre comics on Saturday the 2nd of September from 1 to 2 p.m. Artist and writer A.C. McDonald will be launching his new comic, Twistwood Tales, originally a popular webcomic, now appearing as a print collection. And then the following week, on Saturday the 9th of September, Cy Spurrier, Charlie Adlard, Sophie Dodgson, Jim Campbell and Tom Muller will be signing the new Supernatural series Damn Them All on Saturday the 9th of September from 1 to 2pm. You can find more info about all GOSH signings at their branch in Berwick Street in Soho by going to goshlondon.com stroke the dash gosh dash blog. Panel Borders was recorded, edited and introduced by Alex Fitch and is a Panel Borders production. You can find over 500 previous episodes of Panel Borders by going to our blog, www.panelborders.wordpress.com, and we'll be back on air in early September. Keep an eye on our website for info about the broadcast date of the next episode. Until then, as ever, thanks for listening. This program has been brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. If you liked what you heard and want to support our work, please make a donation at fundraiser.resonance.fm.